we liked the same things, we were drawn to the same, probably even more important than that was a connection like um, two 12-year-olds that are getting in trouble and coming up with things to do, sneaking around and doing them. This is Philip Benight describing his wife Becky in the kitchen of the home they shared. I used to say things and people would laugh. And so then I got the idea that um, the things that I was saying weren't possible and that I was just funny, like a comic. But when I met Becky, I would say those things and she might laugh, but there was also this look in her eye and she would look at me and say, let's do it. Philip met Becky in 1998 while he was working as a clerk at a dress shop in Washington, D.C. called Uncommon Threads. He was 42 and she was 54. The first thing she noticed about Philip was his booming laugh, which reminded her of her father's. In the hopes of spending more time with him, Becky got a job at the store. She and Philip began an easy friendship. They went to museums and gay dance clubs and took day trips to shop for antiques. Soon, Philip moved into Becky's home in Damascus, Maryland. They were two eccentrics who'd never been physically intimate with each other, and they were in love. Let's do it. That's how we ended up going to 27 states and three provinces. When we got to Texas, we ended up on the Red River, which of course was in all the westerns, everybody, somehow they always end up on the Red River. So we stopped and got out to look around. She was really excited with it. And there was a bridge and I was sort of at one end of the bridge, she was at the other, exploring on our own. And a car with a bunch of boys in it pulled up and almost stopped near me, yelled out the window a gay slur, and then laughing, took off. Becky didn't hear what they said, but she could tell by what, just looking, that something had happened. And um, she was angry. When we got together, she said, what did they say? I said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. And Becky was saying, I hope they come back. I said, well, I don't hope they don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, well, I hope they come back because she had some things she wanted to tell them before she beat them. <laughs> and I said, well, <clears throat> I don't want them to come back because I still like men and I would like for these to live. So let's just get in the car and go. She protected me. She fought for me. She stood up for me. She, and she said she wished that uh, she had known me when we were growing up because when I was in school, I wouldn't have been, I would have had somebody that would have fought for me instead of being on my own in Arkansas. Their happiness was put on hold by illness. Becky was diagnosed with cancer of the superglottis, the upper part of the larynx just above the vocal cords. As she recovered from surgery to remove the cancer, Philip had a heart attack. That winter, their house caught fire. 
They cried, then laughed, then fixed it up for sale. One of the first things Becky told me when I met her was that she had always wanted to live in a log house. And when I was working at Uncommon Threads, um, and it was slow, I would draw pictures of log houses for her. So when we sold the house, we decided, I said, let's go get your log house. And that's how we got here. A few weeks after they moved into that log house in Conestoga, Pennsylvania, Becky and Philip were married by a local justice of the peace. They both held some traditional views, and marriage seemed the proper term to describe their relationship. What other people tended to notice about them wasn't that a gay man and a straight woman were married, but how deep their bond was. Her cousin said that uh, one of the things that she found remarkable when Becky and I would come to visit them, that had a large family and we would both be visiting with different people or whatever but she said she noticed that if either one of us got uncomfortable or nervous or kind of anxious that with no words spoken not even seeing each other within seconds either Becky or I would be at the other side and picking up the conversation so that they have a minute to breathe. And regroup, she said she'd just never seen people that were connected on that kind of a level. And to tell you the truth, I didn't really know what she was talking about um, because it never occurred to me that we did it or that if we did it, that anybody would notice. It just sort of happened. It just felt normal to me, so it didn't seem like anything uh, unusual. While they enjoyed their life together, crafting in their log cabin, he got into woodworking while she sewed and made cards, Becky's health only got worse. After several strokes and bouts with cancer, she eventually lost her voice, her hearing, her teeth, and her mobility. When you reach a certain age, and a certain uh, level of disability. When you go into the hospital, you don't go in as a human anymore. You go in as a broken body that they're gonna try to fix. day of August 2016, Becky had a stroke and fell down the stairs. She lay on the landing for seven hours until Philip came home from work. Blood had pooled around her and run down the basement wall. They were both horrified. Philip took another leave from work, driving a school bus, to stay with her. They asked Cigna, their insurer, to cover a home health aid. As they awaited approval, Philip feared for his job. After three weeks, Cigna denied the requests, leaving the Benites with two choices. They could refinance the house to pay for the aid themselves, or they could admit Becky to a nursing home. Then, in November, after Philip's attempts to keep her at home failed, the Lancaster County Office of Aging called to say they were coming to collect Becky. 
In desperation, the Manites checked themselves into Lancaster General Hospital, hoping they could then check themselves out and return home together. Instead, staff from Manor Care, the Office of Aging's chosen facility, came to the hospital to take Becky. Philip watched, astonished and helpless, as his wife was wheeled away. Becky, who had always been fiercely independent, never adjusted to life at Manor Care. I knew that uh, every minute that I was gone and, and that she was in the home, that she was miserable. Because she didn't want to be there, uh, they classified her as a flight risk, even though she couldn't walk. She would still try to get out of the wheelchairs or whatever, so uh, they had to kind of restrain her into the wheelchair and then set the wheelchair out at the nurse's station in the hall so they could keep an eye on her. And she spent her whole day sitting in a hallway in a building that she didn't know with people that she didn't know. And when I would go to pick her up, she would be confused. And they wanted to say that she had dementia, but she didn't. I can tell you, if I sat in the hallway all day, I would have been confused too. At a certain point, they quit talking to her altogether. They'd ask me questions, procedures that she wanted, but they also asked me what she would want for uh, breakfast or dinner the next day, which, I mean, it's taken away every bit of her personality and who she is, that she couldn't even decide what she was going to eat, that somehow I was going to do that. And I would turn and ask her. They would watch me do it and then continue to ask me questions. It was ridiculous. Research shows that elders generally fare better when they remain in their homes. The unfamiliar surroundings of a care facility may provide medical services, what professionals call safety. But the move is disorienting and isolating, often leading to transfer trauma, depression, and distress. At the same time, primary caregivers whose charges are institutionalized suffer from helplessness and anxiety. She basically told me that I had no idea how she felt or what was going on with her physically, emotionally, and that her life was her life, and that when she got ready to end it, it was her business and nobody else's. Um, which I understood that I was okay with, but I told her I wanted to know ahead of time because it, I didn't think that I could live thinking that she just had one bad day or got depressed or something that I wanted to know that she'd really given it thought and. So I asked her if she decided to do that, would she talk to me about it and give me time to to know that, yes, she had thought about the consequences and what she was doing, and, and that's what she wanted to do. And she agreed that that was reasonable and that, that she would do that. Over the next few years, several times, she would talk about it, but I kept thinking that I could get the insurance company to come through, that there were, she would get better. I just wasn't ready for her to do it, and I talked her out of it each time. And one day, here in the kitchen, 
she was upset and she said, I don't know why people won't just let me die. And I said, that doesn't make sense to me because you're not sick enough to die. Nobody can let you die. And she turned around and went upstairs. And I knew she was upset, so I went up to talk to her. And when I got up there, she said, that was the meanest thing that you've ever said to me. And at the time, I didn't quite understand it, but later I did, that I was the person, I was the people that was keeping her alive. It was a hard thing to well, deal with. And I felt guilty for all the pain that she had suffered through those years for me. When I think about it now, I think of how much she loved me to do that for me. In the weeks following her institutionalization at Manor Care, Philip desperately sought alternatives to what Becky was proposing. I was calling the insurance company every day and speaking with the Office of Aging probably weekly. Uh, and I called the governor of Pennsylvania, the insurance commissioner of Pennsylvania, who told me to speak with the insurance commissioner in Maryland. And that insurance commissioner told me to speak to the superintendent of schools, uh, Dr. Dallas Dance, that he would be the one that could uh, help I sent him emails, but he never responded. I uh, found out later that he was embezzling money and, and uh, during that time. So he was busy being a criminal instead of helping us. Um, he was found guilty and went to prison for six months. Ironically, the same amount of time that I got. But each time that it was like step by step, each thing as it didn't work and didn't work and Becky was saying that she was coming home and asking me how much longer I thought and I really didn't know how much longer but I knew that it couldn't be a lot longer because I couldn't I couldn't bear to see her going through what she was going through but I didn't have a will or anything, so I did go to an attorney, and I knew that I had to get everything taken care of so that when we did go, that it would be fine. And that took about a month for me to get that done. As soon as it was done, that's when I told Becky that you're coming home if you want to, but the only way we can do it is if we leave all together. And she said, yeah, she wanted to come home. And I told her, if you tell anybody that this is what we're going to do, and you can do that if you want, they will stop us. They'll say something to me about it. I said, I'll just tell them that you were confused. They'll believe me. So it won't 
won't change anything. You don't have to be afraid that they won't let me see you. They'll just think that you didn't, you misunderstood. And, and she said, I'm not telling anybody because I'm ready. And she didn't. On January 23rd, 2017, Philip picked up Becky from Manor Care and they ate dinner in the car parked in the driveway of their home. They looked out at the fields that rolled down to the Susquehanna River, listening to the radio until there was nothing more to do. I couldn't do anything or allow her to do anything to herself that was gonna hurt. Guns, hanging, any of those things, I I just couldn't uh, imagine hurting her. And pills, you just go to sleep, which we did every night. We knew what that felt like. You just go to sleep. You don't even know you're going to sleep. Philip went into the house and retrieved a container of Kraft vanilla pudding, which he'd mixed with all the drugs he could find, Valium, Clonopin, Percocet, and others. She took them first, and um, I came around and I swallowed three handful. I couldn't do them all at once because it was too much. I took them and then I lit, lit a cigarette and said to her, you want to have one last cigarette with me? And when I turned to look at her, she was unconscious. And I thought, oh, okay. This is going to happen much quicker than I thought. I better get rid of the cigarette or it'll burn us up. <laughs> <laughs> So I threw it out the window, and I don't remember anything after that. I don't even know if it had time to hit the ground before I was out. Three days later, he woke up and saw a bright glow. It was scary. My first reaction was, son of a bitch, there is a light. And... Then I started reaching out for Becky, you know, where, where are you? you? I'm not going anywhere until you're with me, but we have to get to that light somehow. I don't know how we do it, but I can't see you. You'll have to come to me. And somehow I had in my mind, if I kept talking, I thought I was talking, but I was just thinking um, that she would come to the sound of my voice. And then the next time that I opened my eyes, I realized I was in the hospital and, and there were, I was tied down. There were people all around me holding me down, yelling at me, and I was fighting. I actually hated those people at that moment. Even though they had a clearly written note to leave us alone. They overrode what we wanted and decided that they were heroes. The next time I came to, I was untied and the uh, tube was out of my throat and everything was all right, I guess. I asked where Becky was and at first they told me she was in the room next door next to me and uh, and then I went back to sleep and when I woke up again um, 
I said that I was going next door to see her, and they weren't going to let me. That's when they told me that they had moved her to a different hospital, and I didn't believe them, so I went anyway, but I didn't get any further than the hallway and started to slump to the floor, so they helped me back to bed. It was shortly after that that the police showed up and uh, asked me questions. I answered them, and then they arrested me. It's sort of funny that it stayed on my mind and that I was so acutely aware of it at the time was... that the officers that arrested me apologized for having to arrest me. And then they adjusted the handcuffs and fretted over whether or not they were too tight or if I was comfortable, and they handcuffed me in front of my body instead of behind my back. And I told them that the only thing that I wanted was a cigarette, And so when we got down, neither of them smoked. But they found somebody that did and borrowed a cigarette from them so that I could have a cigarette before they took me to jail. And through all of that, what kept running through my mind is there really, really is white privilege. I couldn't imagine if I'd been Hispanic or black. They wouldn't have cared if my handcuffs were too tight. It would have been behind my back, and I could have shoved the cigarette up my ass. The cops' kind treatment of Philip is certainly borne out in what are considered mercy killings, which are officially classified as any homicide in which the deceased was terminally ill, suffered from a condition with no hope for recovery, and indicated a documented desire to die. Although black women experience the highest rate of homicide of any racial group in the United States, experts say those instances are not included in narratives around them. I was watching for a number of years these local news stories go by, and I found the term mercy killing to be very interesting because it's often used for other types of deaths, um, aid in dying, for instance. And my first impression was this is um, a form of domestic violence or extreme examples of men who were uh, usurping their wives' consent, making those decisions for them. That's Ann Newman, the author of The Good Death, the article on which this episode is based, and a native of Lancaster County. She's been following the phenomenon of mercy killings for five years. What I realized was that there was a pattern in these mercy killings across the country. It was elder white couples. The wife typically had a long-term illness and guns were most often used. And so this pattern was really scary to me. And after watching this pattern for about four years and being busy on other things but still paying attention, my sister showed me the cover of the Lancaster Online, the local newspaper, and Philip's face was on the front page. And we realized where you lived. It was like a horrible face, too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, that was right after. That was a hospital photo. That was the mug shot from the. I had been in a coma for three days, and yeah, I, I, I looked bad. The number of elder Americans is growing rapidly, and while medical advancements have greatly improved healthcare. 
they have also prolonged the dying process. End-of-life and at-home care, meanwhile, remain largely uncovered by insurance and under-practiced by medical professionals. For those struggling with daily activities or pain from physical decline, it is often impossible to find and afford the help necessary to maintain a quality of life. Those who can access aid in dying, in the few states that it is legal, tend to be highly educated and financially secure. Most families, burdened with high end-of-life care expenses, don't have the resources to pursue it. You know, there are a lot of people that say, these are bad men who are killing their wives. Oh, yeah. I knocked in your door and I didn't know what I was going to get. Anne visited Philip after he had been sentenced to six months of house arrest for assisting in Becky's suicide. I handed you the plant Mm -hmm. and I said, this is my name and I am so sorry for your loss. Oh, I think I told you I was a a writer. Mm -hmm. And I'm so sorry for your loss. And, and you wept. I did. It uh, actually was a turning point. I, you know, you hear people say that you saved my life, but you did. And that's true. What I learned when I knocked on the door was that these cases were not all bad men. There's an entire range. There are couples that are put in situations that are so dire that they consider their situation worse than death. And what we found through talking is that um, these deaths are not uncommon and that they have many complicated causes, but none of those causes are too complicated to solve, to address. Mm-hmm. But it's the way that our healthcare system is designed. It's the way that police handle wellness checks. It's the way that nursing facilities consider the needs of elder couples. It's the separation that that kind of um, uh, admittance does for a couple causes the challenges that it causes couples. It's the fact that Becky didn't want to be in there. We have a crisis that is not about bad men or women, but that is about the fundamental systemic problems with our healthcare and social systems right now. Philip gave Anne access to everything, medical bills, letters between him and Becky, He even sent a note to his psychiatrist permitting him to submit to an interview. They have continued to stay in touch and regularly talk and text. The day we came to record this interview, Philip made us a beautiful lemon meringue pie and a hearty roast. Why were you willing to give me so much access and why was it so important to you to have Becky's story told? It was important to me for two things. Uh, One was for Becky. I wanted people to know how that she was treated and what she went through. The other reason, though, is that it's not just about Becky. There are people going through the same thing today. Somewhere there's a husband that is crying tonight. 
and something needs to happen to change that. And if I can help with it, then you can have anything you want, mm -hmm. any part of my life. It's open book, if it helps. Um, you're not suicidal anymore. No. Were you ever? I guess. Uh, yeah. Yes, I was. When you wanted to be with Becky. Yeah. But you're not now. No. No, that's over. And I know Becky wouldn't want me to do it. She didn't want me to do it then. This is uh, traditional Pennsylvania farming country that was developed by a variety of different, um, very strict Christian or religions. Um, you yourself descended from Mennonites. This is all to say that we live in a uniquely religious country. And there are certain things that to even broach the subject is to really to cross a taboo and to get people very upset and very activated. So I have to ask, what has been the reaction? I've gotten one nasty email that was dressing me down for my lax morals. Um, to write a story of this sort and not understand that God gives life and God takes it away. But I know any time I write about Aiden dying, in the United States, I often do get mail that criticizes me. Everything else is weeping. A lot of a lot of friends writing and saying, "I wept at work. How can this be? How we do things?" There is a few people, and I'm saying I could count them on one hand. Uh, it's not many that have just chosen not to talk to me mm -hmm. uh, about it or mm -hmm. at all which is fine but they haven't actually said anything negative to me they just pulled away and been quiet mostly it was people being supportive and I was amazed I received a card and I've talked to people in person that told me that they had seen the way that we were with each other, the way that we talked to each other, the way that, and that they knew that we loved each other because it showed. And to tell you the truth, I was kind of astounded. I didn't think anybody noticed us. I really thought that we were invisible. This episode of the Harper's Podcast was produced by me, Violet Luca, and Ann Newman. You can read Going to Extremes, her article, at harpers.org or in the February issue. We received production assistance from Matt Hickey and Cameron French. The music in this episode was Better Off, Eidolon, and Threads, written and performed by Febrifuge. You can find Subtractive, the album they appear on, at febrifuge.bandcamp.com or on Spotify. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.